This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week, I'm David Lipson. Coming up, the New South Wales government releases its report into the Lismore floods. Does it go far enough to prepare communities for the natural disasters of the future? But first... The outcry over former Prime Minister Scott Morrison's decision to secretly appoint himself to several ministries is growing this morning. Well, we're finding out things that we didn't know uh, two and a half years ago. As Prime Minister, Scott Morrison was never far from controversy. No political leader is. But the furore that's erupted this week over revelations he secretly appointed himself as Minister of five additional portfolios has cast a shadow over his time in office, confounding top bureaucrats and constitutional law experts and sending former Cabinet colleagues into fits of anger. I think that Scott Morrison needs to resign and he needs to leave Parliament. I mean, this is this is just unacceptable. Karen Andrews, one of the former ministers who Scott Morrison was covertly shadowing, captured the outrage boiling inside the coalition. And if this is the way that he is prepared to conduct himself without an adequate explanation, even though it is now going to be well past the time when such an explanation should have been made, then it is time for him to uh, leave the parliament and look elsewhere for employment. Well, Scott Morrison's now apologised for keeping even his own colleagues in the dark, but remains defiant that there was a need to safeguard the wheels of government at a time of unprecedented crisis. Professor Cheryl Saunders is a constitutional law expert at the University of Melbourne. She says this week's revelations raise plenty of questions about how our constitution operates and how it should work in the future. Well, I was astonished, really, because it's such a departure from the way in which you expect government operates. And I was also a bit bemused. Uh, I couldn't understand then, and I still can't understand, uh, why it's all happened. Yeah, that's the, the word that a lot of people have been using behind the scenes, isn't it? So on Tuesday, Mr Morrison goes on radio. He says he can't recall if there are any other portfolios, specifically denies taking on responsibility for social services. We can just be clear, are there any other portfolios that you assumed any control over? Not to my recollection, Ben. I'm, I'm, I'm pursuing that, but not to my recollection. There were a number that were considered at the time for safeguard reasons, but I don't recall any others being actioned. Then before the interview is finished, he's found out. There is a story uh, which is breaking at the moment, and I'll read this. This comes through the Australian Associated Press. Scott Morrison, who was sworn into a fourth portfolio with documents revealing more about the former Prime Minister's moves to secretly install himself across his government's ministries, an administrative arrangements order for the social services portfolio was signed by Mr Morrison and Governor-General David Hurley on June 28, 2021, on top of him also being privately sworn in as Health Minister, Finance Minister and Resources Minister. So... According no, I didn't to rule that out. Well, Ben, I mean, I, I, I don't recall that, but I mean, as I said, there were some administrative issues done, and that's what I was just checking. So I mean, I don't dispute that. Um, and and my answer for all of these is is the same. We were dealing with incredible amounts of of uh, discretion and and money being paid. And as Prime Minister, I was just putting myself in a position to ensure that I could exercise my responsibilities. It's it's as simple as that. And then we all find out there were actually five additional portfolios, including Treasury and Home Affairs, very powerful areas of responsibility. 
Now, having heard Scott Morrison's explanation for all of this, can you in any way rationalise his reasoning for doing it and especially for keeping it secret? Well, I think it's very hard to understand the reasons. I mean, as you say, the information about the five portfolios has gradually dribbled out. They were assumed by the former Prime Minister at different points over 2020-2021. And there have been various attempts at explanation, but I'm not sure that I think that any of them are particularly convincing, partly because they seem to be internally inconsistent. Uh, What are the inconsistencies? Well, at one point you get a suggestion that he needed these powers in case ministers overreached or did something that was undesirable. At other times there seems to be a suggestion that he needed the powers in case something happened to the minister. Um, And really, you know, the first of those approaches uh, ought to be able to be dealt with by the cabinet processes and by the ordinary ways in which government operates. And the second, requiring some sort of flexibility if the minister is temporarily unavailable, um, there are plenty of arrangements that can be triggered to deal with a situation of that kind. So I'm not convinced that we yet know exactly why this happened. And yet there's nothing illegal in what was done. So why does this departure from convention matter? Well, let's wait and see whether there's nothing illegal in what was done. Um, The Solicitor General has been asked by the current Prime Minister to to advise on that very issue, uh, and we'll see that advice on Monday. Uh, He's been taking quite a while to write it, so it might be quite a significant piece of advice. Uh, On the face of it, this is lawful in the sense that Section 64 of the Constitution provides for the the Governor-General to appoint ministers to departments, Um, and clearly the Governor-General did sign the relevant instruments. Um, But it'll be interesting to see whether there's more to the legality point Mm -hmm. uh, than that. But even leaving aside the legality, constitutional convention is always a very important part of constitutional government. Mm, And when you look to places like the United States and the UK in recent years, there have been major departures from conventions that have had major impacts and and repercussions and certainly controversy. For example, Donald Trump, uh, his attempt to overturn the result of the election was through overturning conventions initially. And, And Boris Johnson, you know, trying to prorogue parliament, which was ultimately struck down. You get a sense that, you know, conventions are crucial to the way we we do government in, in, in democratic countries. Yes, those two examples you give, David, are, are very good examples to show that any developed constitutional system to some extent will re- rely on established constitutional convention, whether they use the term constitutional convention or not. And the Donald Trump example is interesting because it used to be said in sort of academic writings that Uh, The British constitutional tradition, because it was largely unwritten, uh, relied very heavily on constitutional convention, but the Americans not so much because uh, it had the original written constitution. Uh, But the example of uh, Donald Trump and then uh, Vice President Pence's insistence on complying with the conventions shows you that even in a written constitution of that kind, convention can be absolutely critical to the maintenance of democracy. Uh, And that is certainly the case in Australia, where this part of our constitution really reflects its British heritage. So it begins, for example, by saying that executive power is vested in the Queen and exercisable by the Governor-General. There's no reference to the Prime Minister at all. 
Uh, and to make that part of the constitution work, we need to understand the constitutional practices, understand the reason for them, the important reason underlying them, uh, and to follow them. One of the things that's upset Scott Morrison's colleagues so much is his apparent lack of trust in them. I mean, he claims he feared his own ministers could, as he put it, pose some threat to the national interest as a result of unilateral action. And then it seemed to sort of suggest that that he felt that he alone could, could keep the nation safe. Now, how should he have managed that concern? Well, I mean, I can't even imagine how that concern would have worked out in practice. Say a minister had done something untoward, it's a little bit hard to imagine what that might be, by the way. Um, was he just going to come in over the top and trump? Uh, and how was that going to work? I mean, how do you sort out inconsistent actions between two ministers? Because it wouldn't be a hierarchical situation. He would be operating just as the Minister for Health. There were two of them. Um, but the the real answer to your question, you know, how do you deal with this sort of thing, um, is you use cabinet processes. Uh, it's up to the Prime Minister of the day to make a decision about how he or she wants cabinet to run. Um, and if he really was worried that one or more ministers was going to go off the rails, I mean, quite apart from not continuing with that minister, one way of doing it is through a cabinet process. To a certain extent, this has also kind of engulfed the the Governor-General and, and the office of the Governor-General. Do you think there's anything questionable in, in his actions or, or lack thereof? Look, I think that the whole position of the Governor-General here is very complicated. Uh, it's another of the conventions that clearly applies under Chapter 2 of the Constitution, the Executive Power Chapter, is that the Governor-General acts on the advice of the Prime Minister. And that's clearly what the Governor-General has done here. However, it's often said that um, even though the Crown, whether it's the Governor-General here or the Queen in London uh, or the Governors at the state level, even though the Crown must act by convention on the advice of a government with a majority in the Parliament, it's open to those pe- people, the Crown, to, to, to question the advice. You know, what's actually going on? Is, do you think this is a good idea? Should you be consulting with your colleagues? Now, we don't really know whether or not the Governor-General did that. He might well have done that. I find it pretty hard to believe that the Governor-General didn't find it a bit odd or the Governor-General's staff didn't find it a bit odd uh, that the Prime Minister was coming back to them repeatedly to have another portfolio uh, conferred on him. But there are other mechanisms that Governors-General have. I mean, one that successive Governors-General have used in Australia uh, in other contexts have been to say, well, I'd like your advice to be made public. That was done in 1975 in those highly controversial circumstances. But it's been done on occasion since when um, the parliament's being dissolved or the House of Representatives has been been dissolved. Um, uh, and in fact, it was done by this Governor-General for the last dissolution. Mm. I think the advice that he was given by the Prime Minister on that occasion is a public document. So that's another way in which uh, the Governor-General might have been able to move if he had reason to be uneasy that this, these sort of effectively secret appointments were being made. So what do we need to do now to ensure this doesn't happen again? I think we really need to have a long, hard look at what's happened here. The major problem, I think, is that the parliament itself 
didn't know who was administering these portfolios. And this at a very sensitive time in Australian history. It's absolutely essential that the parliament knows who are the responsible ministers. And through the parliament, the rest of us find out. That's one of the values that parliament plays uh, in our system of government. So I think one of the things that needs to be done is to provide a formal mechanism whereby all ministerial arrangements are tabled in the parliament. Professor Cheryl Saunders is a constitutional law expert at the University of Melbourne. Well, six months after devastating floods hit the Northern Rivers region in New South Wales, more than 1,300 people remain in emergency accommodation, with many more waiting for the state government's report into the floods to find out how and when they can rebuild. I really am just in limbo and I have been for months because I don't know whether to rebuild and we're just all been waiting for this report. This week, the New South Wales government released its report highlighting the dangers of failing to prepare. It recommended land buybacks for those living in the worst hit areas and better coordination between agencies, but there are still plenty of unanswered questions for those living in the flood zones. I think it's good stuff is happening, but I just, I think we're all just so tired and it's just more limbo in a way, even though it seems to be going in a positive direction. And in the meantime, just living in the wreckage of it all. So how can we better prepare? And what are the lessons for managing natural disasters right around the country? Mark Crosweller is the former head of the National Resilience Task Force and former Director General of Emergency Management Australia. He's now Associate Professor at the National Security College at the Australian National University. It's certainly comprehensive. It deals with the immediacy of the problem, particularly in relation to response, coordination, warnings and the like. Uh, And and that is important, it's essential um, that we do that, but it takes a a much longer-term view in particularly in the context of land use planning and land use. It complements the Royal Commission report, of course, that the federal government did a couple of years ago. And so it it gives us a compendium of insight as to what it is we really need to do. I think uh, what's also refreshing about it is it acknowledges unambiguously so the impacts or the potential impacts of climate change. It, it, It notes the ambiguity in this particular event, and I think it should do that. So they've really thought about it. I think the challenge is that how do you make all this actually happen? Because it it implies significant policy reform, legislative reform, uh, structural reform, and long-term implementation beyond the current government's tenure. So I I think whilst it sets the stage for some quite exciting things for community and institutions that are tasked with their protection, the challenge is going to be sustaining the momentum in the reform process for a number of years beyond the term of the current government. Yeah, there's a lot in this report, certainly. Let's start, though, with the plan to stop development in areas prone to natural disasters. Is that workable? Look, I think it's essential, ultimately, because we now know the problem and we can't unknow the problem. So if we go and put people in harm's way, knowing there's a problem, then what does that say about us as a society and the institutions that are making decisions on behalf of others that we're prepared to do that? Now, some citizens will trade off and say they're prepared to accept the risk, but they may not be the citizens that have to experience that risk in the future. So that's been the problem of the past. We, we don't have a, a perfect history of blissful ignorance in the past. We've, we've had a history of willful neglect 
in terms of knowing at least partially about these problems and still making decisions which are not in the long-term best interests of the, of society or the citizens. Yeah, that's exactly the point, hurt. isn't it? Because, you know, there's so much pressure on governments to deliver more housing, affordable housing. So can what you're saying be delivered? Is it workable to, to, to not be building these cheaper homes in these, as you say, dangerous areas? Well, we, we end up structurally, economically and socially locking them in to hazardous spaces and dangerous areas. And I, I just think that's unacceptable. So we have to accept these things are happening. The IPCC talks very much about the inevitability of loss and damage. It's now the third policy pillar that governments need to tackle. So we're tackling mitigation in, in the climate context. We're, we're tackling adaptation. We need to look at loss and damage and accept that losses will occur. I think the challenge there is, you know, out of what's, what has the potential to be lost, what is valuable and who decides that? And from what is valuable and who decides, what is tradable and what is not tradable? And that's a really sophisticated conversation mm. in the community about what is it we're prepared or not prepared to lose in this future of uncertainty, which the report makes observations about, um, in the context of climate change and, and other threats and perils for that, for, for that matter. So this is an ongoing conversation we need to have with community, and I think we need to be truthful about potentiality. And, 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 and again, it's uh, maybe uncomfortable, probably will be uncomfortable mm. for many people, mm. but it's essential. As you say, disasters will continue to happen. They have always happened in this country and others too and probably with greater intensity and frequency as well. Uh, so looking at the, the response, the rescues, really, um, do we need more SES and rural fire service volunteers or is it just about deploying the ones we have more effectively? Uh, I think it's probably the latter, to be straight up about it. I don't think we optimise deployment and I think part of the reason we don't do that is our our technical systems, our information systems are not sophisticated enough. So the sector hasn't, it's starting to move into this space, but it, it needs to move much more into the space of artificial intelligence and machine learning and cognitive technologies that can do a lot of the analysis that are currently being done by humans can actually be done by machines. And So what and does that mean? You, pl you plug all the data into a computer and it tells you the, the risk where, where, where yeah, places are it, going to be in danger. It, if you've got um, you know good sensory capacity on the weather, for example, you know exactly where your resources are placed, and you've got good modelling on forecasting fire paths, for example, and fire intensities, then you can you can absolutely optimise the deployment of those resources. Whereas at the moment, it's visual, it's it's uh, human drolic, uh, and it's usually too late. And having been a former volunteer many years ago, I can promise you that it's much more frustrating getting to a location too late than it is about getting to a location that ultimately doesn't manifest as an event. We seem to get one of these big reports after every major natural disaster. Do you think we are getting better at actually responding to those reports and, and dealing with these kinds of disasters? Not as well as we could, David, to be straight up about it. I think there's a there's an apathy about some of these recommendations. The Royal Commission, for example, is it's uh, and despite best efforts of you know many people to move those recommendations forward, still hits difficulties in the space of Commonwealth state relations and commitments and funding and priorities and and so it goes on. So, so I think the I think the uh, the Royal Commission refreshingly bookended the totality or the near totality of the challenges facing the sector going forward. I've always said that I think the revelation is not so much in what the Royal Commission identified, but the revelation will be in the implementation of its recommendations. They do tend to fall off over time because people think we've got time, 
to implement what it is they're asking us to do. Whereas the fact of the matter is we don't have as much time as we think we do. And even in my 38-year career, which is in climatic terms, nothing really, but but I've seen or witnessed and experienced enormous increases in intensity and frequency across the Australian landscape. And, and I think at the strategic policy level, we have to accept that that's a reality. So any given community might still see cat- catastrophe as a rarity, but as a nation or as an individual state, they're not rare, they're quite frequent. Mark Crosweller, Associate Professor at the National Security College at the Australian National University and former Director General of Emergency Management Australia. Well, for those impacted by the floods and for millions more right up and down the east coast of Australia, there was more unwelcome news this week. Another La Nina weather pattern is looking increasingly likely. It would be the third in a row. And Tweed Shire Mayor Chris Cherry says that's a frightening prospect for people in flood zones. It's crushing down on people, just that idea that they could go through another event of that kind of magnitude in the next 12 months. It's just, it's, I can't tell you how much that adds to the stress of people. It's not the first time we've seen back-to-back La Ninas, but it is rare. Dr Lyndon Ashcroft is a climate scientist at the University of Melbourne. This is quite an uncommon situation we've got now because it looks like we might be heading into our third La Nina event in a row. We had a week one in 2020 and then another week to moderate La Nina in 2021 and conditions have eased, but now it looks like we're going to dip back into it again. So a triple dip. We have warmer than normal ocean temperatures off the northeast coast of Australia and cooler than normal ocean temperatures off the coast of South America. The atmosphere is also producing the pattern that we would expect with a La Nina event and also the computer climate models that are used to forecast what's happening three to six months ahead. Four out of the seven ones that are used around the world are all suggesting that by October, the thresholds will be reached for us to reach a La Nina pattern. That's not the news many on the on the East Coast were hoping for. I guess, does it mean more heavy rain, more extended periods of rain or both? Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, every La Nina event is different, but the numbers that we're seeing for this one, I just looked them up and they are stronger than the previous two years. So the, the sort of indicators are similar to maybe 2010, 2011 values, which generally we associate these conditions with wetter than average springs and early summers along the east coast of Australia. And it will continue probably until early January. So probably 20, early 2023, we might see it break down. And hopefully by autumn next year, it will have broken down. It's You don't often see four La Nina events in four years. So hopefully this will be the last one. Well, yeah, that was what I was going to ask. How unusual is it to get several in a row? Because we're pretty used to seeing La Nina, El Nino um, events, but you know these these sort of back to back. It seems to to my memory to be pretty unusual. We often get two in a row. Sometimes they'll go um, back to back. We might get a strong El Nino that is broken by quite an intense La Nina event. We're such a dramatic country in Australia. We really swing between the two and we always have but to get three in a row yeah it doesn't happen that often the last one I think was the late 1990s 1998 to 2001 and that actually was quite mild it didn't bring as much rain as previous triple dips have the one before that was in the mid 70s and that there was a lot of rain there 1973 to 76 and the 1974 floods in Brisbane 
loom large in people's memories. So it does happen. When it happens, it often brings a lot of rain, but it's not overly common that we get three in a row. Just to remind us what the underlying causes are, how, how, do the, how does the sort of science and mechanics of this cycle work? That is such a fascinating question that lots of scientists ask around the world and there's quite a few theories about it. Basically what we see with a La Nina phase is we get a strengthening of the trade winds. So the winds that blow from the east to the west across the Pacific, they get stronger and there's a few different theories about why that happens. And when when the winds strengthen, they essentially push a lot of warm surface water from the coast of South America across towards us so you get cool water upwelling, kind of rising up from the from deeper below off the South American coast, and then warmer surface water that's pushed across to the to the western part of the Pacific, which means there's more warm surface ocean water available to kickstart convection and rainfall in the atmosphere. So there's more moisture available in the atmosphere to fall as rain uh, along the east coast of Australia, and conversely, less uh, warm water near South America. So we'd often get drought conditions on South America and the western part of the US, which is actually what we're seeing now. So what impact could this have on some of those flood-affected communities up and down the east coast of Australia? I shudder to think, to be honest. Um, The catchments are already completely saturated. The Murray-Darling Basin is at 90%. There's catchments all along the east coast that are really just full, completely full, and even small amounts of rainfall now could bring some devastation. So I think the best thing to do is continue to be prepared. I mean, hopefully these numbers won't bear out as significantly as as it looks like they might, but there's a real chance that if we get a weather system that comes through or if we get a tropical cyclone or two, then there'll be another round of natural disasters before the year is out, which is just heartbreaking, (laughs) really not what we need. It really is um, heartbreaking. The west coast of Australia is facing the opposite problem. It's it's sort of too dry there. It's it's a different phenomenon. But we're also seeing severe drought in places like Africa, uh, the United States, uh, the UK. How interconnected are all these different systems? They're well, everything's related in the climate system, I would say. What we have right now is a pattern happening in the Pacific Ocean with our La Nina alert, our almost La Nina. And in the Indian Ocean, we also have this kind of seesawing pattern set up. We've got warmer than normal ocean temperatures off the northwest coast of Australia and cooler than normal ocean temperatures sort of off the coast of East Africa. And so that, again, means there's more moisture in the northwest part of Oz, which could lead to higher than average rainfall up there. And it also means extended drying in Africa. And we're already seeing this drought kind of roll on and on in Africa. So it feels like Australia is getting all the rain and the continents and countries around us are not getting any, which is really hard to see. And that brings us to the question of climate change. How much of a role is it playing in in these particular events? The relationship between El Niños and La Niñas and climate change is a really tricky one to untangle. And it's a question that scientists have been asking around the world for a long time. At the moment, what we're seeing is the computer models that we use to project what's going to happen in the future are suggesting that a warmer world means more El Niño events, right? So more kind of drying conditions for Australia. But the observations are kind of saying the opposite. And mm. now we're thinking, oh, what's going on? Are the models missing a trick? Mm. We that's, know that that's the whole... fascinating because we were, you know, think back 10 years ago, 
most of the warnings about climate change, for Australia at least, were, were around drought and bushfires and, and dry yeah. weather. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think I think they're probably accurate as well. What we might see in the future is, if it's possible, more dramatic swings between these droughts and flooding rains. We know that extreme events are going to get more extreme. More heat waves are definitely on the cards in a warmer world, and we're already seeing that around the planet. But when it comes to are we going to get more La Nina events or more intense ones or longer ones, we still we still don't know. And it's because everything is connected in the atmosphere and ocean system. And there might be a trick that the climate models are missing about how Arctic sea ice connects to the tropical Pacific or how I don't know, the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean connect. It's a fascinating science question, but it's one that we kind of haven't gotten to the bottom of yet. Dr Lyndon Ashcroft, a climate scientist at the University of Melbourne. Well, that's this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to This Week, which is produced by Madeline Jenner, Matt Bamford, Will Ockenden and me, David Lipson. Have a great weekend. Listener.